hear and, and understand those things that each of us need today. And it isn't that we all need the same thing, but you can turn this in through your word, can minister to all of us at whatever point, whatever need we have. And we look to that and, and give that to you and, and ask for you to move in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't have a, a specific scripture at this point to, to put up on the, the board. The, the one that I would be looking at initially would be uh, the one from, uh, that was read about Paul already and all the persecution that Paul went through. And what we need to, to see is it's interesting as we look through the book of Acts uh, and you read through it, you find that the church from the very beginning experienced persecution. It, 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 the church is, is no stranger to it. It's not something that, that uh, you know, came up uh, years after the church had founded, but it, it began, uh, as soon as the church began, the persecution began. And what it is, is that you need to understand, it, and we've been talking about this in, in, in uh, other places and other messages recently, but the idea is that, that to the world, when they look at the gospel message, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I always clarify that again and say bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we look at that, and we realize that the world, as, as, as it's looked at by those who are Gentiles, which means anybody who's outside of the Jewish faith or the Jewish ethnic group, we're all Gentiles then, Gentiles said, oh, that is such foolishness. And one of the things that really got them was the resurrection, and especially when it was emphasized the bodily resurrection. And it's an interesting thing that all through my life that I can remember, uh, before I was ever a Christian, uh, my dad was always wanting to philosophize about things and, and talk about things. And the book came out, uh, uh, The uh, uh, Passover Plot. And uh, if in the framework of that was how it was, there was a number of ways to look at the cross. So there was a charade in the sense of a scam. Jesus intentionally, you know, took drugs on the cross and and appeared as dead with the intent to appear as resurrected and brought, you know, as his disciples rescued him from the tomb. Uh, there was the other picture of of uh, uh, that Jesus wasn't wasn't bodily resurrected but his teachings were resurrected. Uh, and he was a good guy, a good teacher, uh, just uh, kind of an, uh, a rebel at heart, uh, anti-establishment. You know, and of course, that went over really well in the 60s. Uh, and, but overall, just this picture, but the bodily resurrection? Oh, such foolishness cannot be. I have to tell you, I was in that camp until... Uh, the Lord just he put the per, right person at the right time in the right place, got me to, to com, commit to reading the Scriptures, especially the Gospel of John with the understanding. See if you can't think. The guy said, Bob, just look at it and see if you can't think and see that, that John was writing from a conviction. He believed what he was writing. I'm not asking you, Bob, to believe it, but you, you can see that John, just see if you, if you can see that passion. 
I thought that was kind of an interesting challenge. And I, as you know, I've shared many times, I took the challenge and read the Gospel of John, uh, Luke, Mark, Matthew, uh, and uh, that afternoon. I think you could have walked into Kathy's mouth when I got home. She asked you, what did you do? And I said, oh, I read the Gospels this afternoon. Because, uh, you know, the last thing I'd said to her about church was, your friends come over with their Bibles, you can call me at the Wheelark, which was a pool hall uh, bar. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want anything to do with it. So, and it was clear to me at that point that I saw that there was a passion. But I have to tell you, I was on a quest from that point on for the next year and a half. I could not figure out, and I'll put it in the kind of generic way I put it back then, how you guys can possibly buy into the resurrection like that. And I just I spent the next year and a half buying books, uh, trading work for, for, for book credits at a Christian bookstore, uh, whatever I needed to do to try to figure it out. And long before I had really, I, I, as I was still wrestling with it, the Lord opened my eyes to the reality that Jesus is who He said He is. And I came up with just about that time, Josh McDowell came out with, uh, you know, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or who He said He was. And uh, I listened to a, a message of His and, and I realized it's for real. I went from it's foolishness to it's real. But I want you to go through that with me again just to understand. The world looks at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Bible as the only Word of God as foolishness. Now, when the Jews look at it, they look at it as a stumbling block. They just simply refuse to see Christ the Messiah in Jesus. They will look at Jesus. They'll acknowledge Him. Different groups, depending on what part of the... The, the culture that they have as far as their, their Jewish heritage and stuff goes, some of them will even acknowledge Jesus as prophetic and a good teacher. But no, not the Messiah. And so they look at it as a st- and it becomes a stumbling block for them, it says. So uh, when, when this comes into their face and they said, here it is, and, and it was exploding, you have to understand... The scripture that Ted read from Acts chapter 17, they were turning the world upside down. Every place they went, there was, it, it was really upsetting things. In one town, they, they got really upset because they said, hey, if Paul's successful in raising up a, a group of people who believe this, this our, our, our idol sales are going to go down. They weren't concerned about the idol worship as much as they were the idol sales. It raised up a riot. You see, the coming to Christ, coming to God, coming to understanding who Christ is was just simply a major change, no matter who you were. And the neat thing you understand as you see this, whether it was in the book of Hebrews, said, you guys went through all of this, but you persevered, you know, was that it was no small thing. It wasn't a casual thing. It was a deep-seated thing that God was doing in people's lives. And when they came to Christ, they, they, they no longer blended in to the day-to-day routine of the world. Now, they, they still got up at, at whatever time was necessary to be at work on time and, and, and be wherever they were supposed to be and do the job that they were supposed to do. In fact, they were even told exclusively by Paul, you know, you be the best worker. 
You give to your boss, I don't care what he is, who he believes, or for that matter, how he treats you, even as a slave owner, if that's what he is, you treat him with respect and you give him work as if unto the Lord. In other words, your job is, is to serve the Lord even, even in slavery. He didn't make any exceptions about that. So that part of their life went on, but they did it instead of groaning and moaning and complaining. They did it with thanksgiving. They didn't go, you know, they, how thankful we are to have food, how thankful we are to have covering, how thankful we are, whatever. They did it with thanksgiving, and they were thankful. And in a sense, you know, payday, you know, they didn't come up to the, to, to the, the, the one handling, the, the, the servant handling the pay and, and say, uh, mm. they said, thank you. I'm serious. This was the idea. It's a change of heart, the way we look at it. Certainly, we could have a lesson or two from this today. And so, you understand that there was, it, was, it was radical. And they did, the Christians stood out. Enough so that in Antioch, there was a point in time where they said, look, there go Christians. The first time that it was actually used the name Christians to describe people who were believers in Christ, followers of Christ, wasn't the Christians. They didn't say, we're Christians. We're, they were, if anything, they were saying, we're followers of the way, we're the followers of Christ, we're the followers of the Nazarene. There were a lot of ways they explained themselves, but they didn't call themselves Christians. The Gentiles, looking at them, called them Christians and said, look, there go people that, that do that Christ stuff, that Christian stuff. They stood out. We weren't to be surprised that there was persecution. Jesus told us very clearly in, in uh, John, for instance, at the time that he was gathered with the disciples uh, and the last meal and the time that he prayed with them and he shared a lengthy time of teaching with them. And one of the things he told them in, in chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. No surprise. Chapter 17, he, he basically says it again. I have given them your word, as he's praying he's to the Lord, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So, Christ, receiving Christ and having His word, the only word of God, the God-breathed word, sets us apart. And you think about it, it should. Do you realize what we hold here? Do you accept the idea of God-breathed that Paul speaks of when he says, this is God-breathed? Peter says, this is God-breathed? So, no surprise. Jesus said this was going to happen, and it happened from the very beginning. John and Peter and, and, and the other disciples teaching and, 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 and preaching the Word of God in the city of Jerusalem. You've got to remember, this was just a few weeks after the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus and, his, and, and the celebration that they had of His resurrection. 
and, and his ascension just a, a short time before that. You know, I mean, before this time that we're looking at in Acts in chapter 4. And, and as they were, in fact, they were at the temple, they healed a man in Jesus' name, and it was just exploded. And they were brought before the council, of the same council that had turned Jesus over to Pilate for crucifixion, the same exact council. And I can imagine what might have been going through their heads. You know, but before they hid from it. They hid in a locked room, but now they boldly went out and they said, okay, we're before your council. And the council says, no more Jesus stuff. I know I'm paraphrasing, but you know, no more Jesus stuff, okay? They saw the man that was healed. They knew the miracle had happened, but they said, no more Jesus. They said, we've got to do what we've got to do. You've got to do what you've got to do. We're going to have to preach it. And so they, they admonished them some more. They you know, roughed them up a bit. And then they sent them out telling them, no more. And they went back to the upper room, prayed some more. The building shook again. And they were filled again with the Holy Spirit with a fresh anointing to go out at this point and preach the Word of God with boldness. That's exactly what they did. Guess what happened? Peter and John, they got arrested again. Now, so from the very beginning, the church was under attack. You know, it's kind of interesting. Satan is, you know, he's sitting there thinking he, he's, he's doing something that is, you know, but he doesn't do anything, you know, without permission. He, he may think he's scoring at this point, but all he was doing was building it. He was, you know, as people saw the reality of what Jesus had said and all that was coming true and, and, and things that had happened, they realized, you know, this is real, this is true. No wonder Satan wants to attack it. With more of an attitude, no surprise. But we are in Christ. Greater who is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are in the body of Christ. And the world is a footstool of Christ. Where is Satan? Footstool of Christ. Where are we? Sitting on the throne with Christ. Body of Christ. You know, put it into perspective. That, by the way, is no thing to go out boldly and just stand there and, and try to, to be a demonic, you know, exercise, you know, people from the demons or, you know, all that kind of stuff, as much as the reality that we don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear persecution. But it certainly, when you think about it, can be extremely intimidating. Jesus said, no surprise, we see it in the beginning of the church. We reflect on Paul's ministry. You know, when he was uh, uh, in Damascus, it says, you know, he was, he, he, it was out of the Scripture that, we, that B.J. read. Uh, he was secretly lowered over the wall in the middle of the night uh, because there was a, an attempt to arrest him there. Um, the, just all the different things that happened to him. Uh, he was run out of town, in, you know, uh, more than once. Uh, he was beaten, it said, five times with, uh, with the, the lash, and it was 40 less one, 39 lashes. Now, it's interesting. The Jews used the lash in, in, in discipline. Forty lashes was, was what uh, was allowed, but they always did less one because they were merciful. I mean, that's really the end of that. And so, he got his 40 lashes, but he only got 39. And so, Paul's explicit about it. We know who was doing these lashes because of the way he describes it. 
the 40 less 1. He was uh, left for dead. Acts chapter 14. They literally stoned him until he was down. The Jewish population that was against him stoned him until he was down. Now, I, I tell people, they said, well, he wasn't really, you know, was he, was he dead or wasn't he, was he not dead? Well, you know, they left him outside as if dead, outside of the, the... All I know is that these people normally knew when they had succeeded in stoning somebody to death. The reality, all we see is, is that he was laid out outside the town and, the, and the, the Christians came around him and they prayed and, and he stands up. What does he do? He walks back into the town. Okay? And, and when he walks back into the town, they realize that his ministry may be temporarily over here and, and he leaves the next day. But within a, a short period of time on, the, on, his, on his return journey, he goes back there and preaches again. Prison? Multiple times. Also, one of the things that, that weighed heavy on him was a, as, as a form of, of, in a sense, you could say a form of persecution, but this, in this sense, is more uh, just of concern, and that was that he was always concerned for the welfare of the churches. And when it says anxious in, in, in the Scripture there that was read, doesn't mean anxious in the sense of, of you know, I'm, uh, I'm anxious about my future, I'm anxious about this. Uh, yeah, it was more of an anxious in the sense of concern that the church will, will, will be okay, that everybody will be okay, and wants you to make sure that you've done everything that you could to, to make that happen. Paul was, was committed to his ministry. Generally, Paul gave his life in a long ministry. In the mid to late 60s, uh, the city of Rome caught fire. Horrendous fire. A big portion of the city burned down. And, you know, they're, 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 the, looking back historically, uh, there's a lot that think that Nero was actually the instigator of this burning. And, of course, According to his eccentricities and, and, and a little bit on the, the the strange side, they say you know fiddler uh, Rome or Nero fiddled while Rome burned. You maybe have heard that expression before, but the idea is is that he blamed the Christians, and there was a great increase in, in in persecution. Paul was in prison at the time, and it's right during that time or shortly after that that Paul was martyred uh, by most agreement uh, that he was beheaded, which was the, the way a Roman uh, prisoner would be uh, executed. The ultimate persecution to give your life. Now, I want to go back to uh, John chapter 15 just for a second here because Normally, you know, when we talk about the persecuted church, we automatically think of something that's going on in, in the Middle East, for instance. It's very prominent to us today. Uh, certainly what goes on in North Korea, what goes on in other places in the world where, where either Muslim groups or communist groups uh, are in control and Christianity is not free to breathe, if you will. And we realize 
that that is the extreme side of persecution. I don't know, has anybody in here ever felt that they have been persecuted? Don't You don't have to raise your hand, more rhetorical. You think that, you know, uh, the fact that maybe you were told that you can't speak about Jesus where you work. Or maybe the fact that, uh, you know, uh, your high school years, uh, the, the school didn't allow Christian activity of any kind. Maybe even the point of carrying your Bible drew attention to yourself. And I know some schools that actually, uh, if you were a Christian... Uh, carrying your Bible, you were asked to take your Bible. You know, most of the time, I mean, there was no suspension or expulsion. So those were, there were some extreme. Most of the time, you were asked to take your, your Bible back to your locker or to your car, but out of sight. Why? Same reason it's always been. People do not want to acknowledge a sovereign God. That's just all there is to it. Because if you're right, everybody else is wrong. And, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll take and turn around and say, that's just foolishness. That's too arrogant. That's too narrow-minded, whatever. Uh, you know, I've, I've experienced very little in my life in the sense of persecution. I did lose one job because I was the Christian. Um, I was not the one that made a big deal about it other than where I worked, I asked for Sundays off. I was in Bible college. One of the things required in Bible college is Sunday ministry, Sunday church activity, and being involved. And everybody in this company had to be at work on Sunday. Everybody. I asked if there was any way I could be excused from that. They said, and, and the manager was saying, absolutely not. And, then he, and, and, and he said, oh, I'll tell you what. He says, if you get a unanimous vote of the, the floor staff, you know, which I was a part of in this furniture store, you get the unanimous vote of the floor staff, then you can have it off because that means they're willing to cover your work on Sunday. They gave me a unanimous vote. And he was very upset, but he, he set the rules. And, and so I was able to, to do that. Well, when the owner uh, who had hired me uh, passed away, a week later I was fired. And I went to work for a short period of time. And just to show you how God can do something, I went to work for a short period of time for Kelly Moore Paints. Kelly Moore is owned by Mormons. I needed the summer. I just gone to work for them in like uh, January. I needed the summer off for a summer ministry. I put in for it. My the boss just I mean, the supervisor just says just put in for it. The manager of the store and I put in for it. They thought I was a, probably a Mormon uh, missionary and they automatically approved it at a low level because they didn't want to upset the apple cart far, further up the road. And I had the whole summer off, came back to my job in September, and then it looked like everything was going to slow down. I would be the first person to go. And the, old, the, the, owner, the owner that passed away, his father had come back into the store, was going over the records and said, what happened to this guy? Oh, we fired him. Why? Well, couldn't come up with a reason. The owner called him back and said, would you like your job back? Your hours, you choose the time you work. Come in when you want to come in. Leave when you want to leave. And I had that job with a raise, good insurance, for the last two years of my Bible college. So, you never know how God's going to turn something around. That's the closest that I've come to being persecuted. They tried to mock me at one point. They put a cross over my spray booth. I did a lot of furniture finishing there. 
They put a cross over my spray booth and they call it the holy ground because I lacquered uh, memory verses to the wall of the spray booth so that I could you know, do my memory work while I was spraying because I, you know, there's a lot of that has to do in, in Bible college. And uh, so they call it the holy ground and they thought I'd get upset about it and I just said thank you. You know, uh, I, I thought it was cool they acknowledged it. I do want to share with you, even though they all had something to say constantly negative, with the exception of one person, every one of those people over, over a span of time, I had an opportunity to talk to in the crisis. I got to lead one to the Lord. I got to lead one back to the Lord. I got to baptize one. So, again, you never know, even in the midst of a, a negative environment, what God's going to do. So, I put all of that just to say, we need to understand persecution is, is more of this picture of, of it can happen anywhere, any place, and it can be very subtle. But even the extreme to the subtle, God, I believe with all confidence, when we approach it with confidence in God, is going to use it to His glory and to our benefit and to the benefit of His kingdom. Now, John writes what Jesus tells us again in, in uh, chapter 15, uh, this time the 13th verse. Uh, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is calling them friends just after He says, no greater thing can a friend do than to lay down his life for his friend. What was He saying? I want you to lay down your lives for Me. And a lot of times we take this idea of lay down your life at this point as what the ultimate sacrifice of death. But lay down your life here really is more involved with living for Christ than physically dying for Christ. And the reality is, until we live for Christ and we come into a saved relationship with Him, we can't die for Him anyway. Okay, And so the idea really is, are you living for Christ no matter what's going, wrong, going on in the circumstances around your world? Whether it's joy or darkness, yeah, either way, we are going to turn around and say, it is well with my soul. May we be asked to give our lives? Yeah, it's a possibility. There's a uh, minister by the name of uh, Stephen Killett, and uh, he, uh, uh, a number of years ago, uh, did this message, but uh, I, I will give you some things. So it's just kind of this idea of lay down our lives. He gave some, some picture to it. Uh, and, and the idea of, of this laying down is the idea of sacrifice. I am going to sacrifice my life. And again, that has that kind of connotation you know, of, of death. You know. But what does Romans 12 tell us? We are to give ourselves as a what kind of sacrifice on a daily basis? A living sacrifice. We are to daily lay down our lives for Christ and, and for His kingdom. So, in a sense, the first thing that we do in order to be, whether it's in a persecuted church or anywhere else, to, to be a Christian is that we die to self to live for Christ. And that's also a process that goes on. 
And I look at, at, at uh, uh, the reality of, of, of going through my life, and I'm, and I'm going to go back to Stephen's message here just to, in a sense of one of his illustrations and personalize it, but I've been a Christian for 38 years, approximately 14,000 days. Now, you know, it, it's funny, you know, you put it that way. It, it, I don't know whether that to you seems like it really stretched it out. For me, I said, is that all? <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that if we're giving ourselves day by day, laying our, every day, and basically as a Christian, 14,000 sacrifices later, I wish I could say that in earnestly in the sense of absolutely happened every day. But still, day by day, one day at a time, I have lived for Christ. And He has called me to that day for whatever purpose that He has for me. To be whatever I needed to be, whether it was as a husband, as a father, uh, as a, as a son-in-law, and my uh, living in my when I first became a Christian, living in my mother-in-law's home, it uh, didn't matter where it was, I, I, I needed to be what He wanted me to be for that day. And do we plan ahead? Certainly you do, but it's one day at a time as we walk. Now the interesting thing is that I look at, in the 14,000 days, God has yet to call me to give my physical life. Mine has been one day at a time for a lengthy period of time. I look at a person in the Scripture who we don't—he didn't live a long Christian life. His name is Stephen. Stephen, Stephen, chapter six, seven, and eight, Book of Acts tells he was already a believer. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. He was called on to help in a particular ministry to the widows that weren't getting fed. He was a part of that. And then at some point, he got really involved in ministry. It wasn't just serving there, but he was beyond that. Many things being done through him that were visible in the community. And again, the Sanhedrin, the council, got all upset and arrested him. And... I don't know, you know, he, he's, he could be thinking at this point, well, you know, Peter and John have been here, the apostles have been here, no surprise. And not maybe even a concern that maybe death could be around the corner at this point because it hasn't happened yet to anybody else that's been brought here. But he gives a testimony of the history of the Hebrew people looking for God and falling away from God. And, looking for, and finally, he calls the people in Acts chapter 7, he says, and you stiff-necked people, he's talking to the council of learned scholars of the Hebrew nation and of the Word of God. He said, and you stiff-necked people basically missed it again, just like the prophets in the past that you've killed, you've come up against it, and you've, you've, you've crucified the Christ. They covered their ears, they couldn't take it anymore, and they drugged him out to kill him. It is interesting that before, or as he was being killed, stoned. Actually, as they were just before they drug him out, he says, I see Jesus Christ. says, heaven opened up to him. He says, I see Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. By the way, I get goosebumps every time I hear this scripture because it makes me think about 
Where, how do we normally picture Jesus at the right hand of God? Sitting. But he's standing. And all I can think of, he's standing in honor of Stephen's perseverance and love for him. I, you know, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that made them all the more angry, and they pulled him out of, of the temple. They took him outside, probably outside the city gates at this point, and stoned him. And even in his dying breath, he asked God to forgive them and not hold this against them. He didn't say not for they don't know what they're doing in the context of what was happening at the cross. He said, they, he, because obviously they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but, but they, you know, he, he asked it not to be held against them. And I'm one who believes when you let go of a sin that's been held against you, that God can let go of it too in his wrath against you. It doesn't, doesn't settle the score between you and all your other sins or your faith or lack of faith between you and God. But I can see God saying, Stephen, I honor that. This won't be held against them. I, I, I can see that. Certainly I believe that's what happened when Jesus said it from the cross. Do you think those sins were held against those people, that particular sin? I think they were, they were graced. I think it's possible that when we forgive somebody legitimately that we can grace them. We can't, un, we can't get it, you know, undo their particular confession of faith. And you think about it, what's the sin that really counts? The one that doesn't, you know, is the not confessing Christ. So, but anyway, that's a side issue. Stephen forgives them. And that's one more aspect of this. I see that we come to the Lord. We live day for day. Now, it's interesting. All of Stephen's days, in a sense, the majority of Stephen's days were required in one fell swoop. Jesus has taken my days over a lengthy period of time. I think of other missionaries as they've gone to the Peruvian Indians and other places where there's, their days have been, boom, caught at once. And others who have stayed for 40 years or, or 50 years or second and third generations in areas before anything really happens for Christ. You know? And, and it, it's not a matter of... of it's, it's are we prepared to be who God needs us to be today no matter what the situation is in the world around us. The persecuted church, by persevering, is a tremendous witness for Christ. There are people that will hear and see Christ that have ne- would never have seen it otherwise because of the persecuted church. That happened all through the first century as, as Christians were persecuted, up into the third century as Christians were persecuted. They went to their death singing hymns and soldiers standing back saying, there must be something to this. And over and over and over again, history talks about groups of people who come to the Lord through the church's perseverance in the midst of persecution. Again, God will take all of it, put it together and in the plan that He has orchestrated, and none of it will go to waste in the sense of bringing about His kingdom's work and even our own blessing and benefit. I see forgiveness as a key, by the way, and I can't imagine as a persecuted church how difficult that must be for them. But I've heard over and over and over again through Voice of the Martyrs and other organizations of testimonies of these people's willingness to forgive their persecutors. 
Jesus made it very clear. Matthew chapter 5, verses 40, verse 44, about loving your enemies and even praying for them. Loving your enemies and even praying for them. To love someone is to be able to forgive them. I, I, I cannot see the two separated. God so loved us that He forgave us. It's constantly tied together. The fruit of the Spirit of gentleness, kindness, and, 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 and treating each other with kind of respect all implies that context of forgiveness tied to it. And, and, and so the fruit of the Spirit of love is, is demonstrated in multiple ways, but I see it most in forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom, able to forgive a guard in her later years as she was giving public testimony who came forward and had mercilessly, mercilessly with viciousness, uh, you know, just killed people and, 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 and brutalized people around her, including her own family. And he came forward and says, can you forgive me? And she basically said, there isn't anything else but that that I can do. I forgive you. I have to. Like I said, I, the 14,000 days or so, so far for me, God has been taking them one day at a time. Others have been asked to give their days all at once. But no matter how it goes, our prayer needs to be, may the Holy Spirit fill us with boldness to preach His Word, with the love of Christ and forgiveness. And what better place to go to than, than at this point than communion? And, and rest with confidence in the forgiveness that Christ has given us and the example of His blessing. And to see it again through Stephen as, as, as following suit, if you will, and bringing that same kind of grace to his persecutors as well. Ask the ushers to come forward. Joe, if you would please. And uh, Joe, just an opportunity for the moment to say thank you so much for filling in. Levi wasn't supposed to be here today. Uh, but uh, his last-minute plans changed as well. But Joe had, had agreed to pinch hit for us, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.
We share communion this morning. Again, that reality that in churches all over the world this morning, communion has been shared. We break bread together with the body of Christ, not just here alone. And within the framework of that, in some places where it had to be done in a basement or a closed off room and done quietly, but still the reality. We share the same Jesus Christ. Come in the flesh. His flesh was broken and torn for us. And he, asked, he told us that it was, was done for us in such a way that we would, you know, as we would share this bread, we would remember God incarnate in the flesh, broken and torn for us. And he's asked us as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. God coming in the flesh was only the, the prelude to what had to happen. Jesus, God incarnate, had to go to the cross, hung on a tree, a disgrace to the, the, the Jews and a mockery to the Gentiles, where His blood would be poured out until He died. Physically died took on the wrath that was ours and granted us grace and said, forgiven. And pronounced His righteousness over us if we will but rest in Him. And He asked us as often as we would share this cup together to do it in remembrance of Him until He comes again. Father, we come Again, recognizing your sacrifice and realizing how much you love us. Trying to understand, but never will completely, how much it costs you. Because we'll never know the cost. You've already paid it for us. And asking, Lord, that as your grace works in us, that we not become complacent, that we not become comfortable in our, in our easygoing lifestyle compared to others in the sense of the church. I can carry my Bible. I can, uh, you know, 
I can preach on Sunday mornings. I can preach any night of the week. Uh, I can even stand on the street corner and proclaim Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not be complacent in that, but realize all the more with such freedom comes responsibility. Lord, we want to be Your people in a land that needs to hear Your Word. We do pray for revival and renewal in our, in our country. And Father, we ask that You would cause us to leave today with that confidence that one day at a time we are to lay our, down, our lives down for You in such a way as to proclaim You alone are sovereign, Your Word alone is our guide, and we rest in You completely for our salvation. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.